Welcome back, everybody, players, players, dudettes, amigos, amigas, everybody in between. This is a special episode, and we're going to do things a little different. So uh, Murph and I were at the California Gang, Southern California Gang Conference. Mm -hmm. um, we got some great interviews, Murph, uh, and one of them we got uh, was from uh, Ramon, Ramon Mundo Mendoza, one of the original members of the Mexican Mafia. I mean, this this dude is OG as they come, yep. and so what Murph and I decided we're just we'll give you a quick bit of intro, but we're not we're not going to do our usual banter and stuff because this, like Natasha Hertzik's episode, is so serious we don't want to make light of it, and you know we're respectful of him, but um, still, on the other hand, when you hear what he's done, you'll understand we love talking with him because we love learning, but uh, he's changed his ways, right, Murph? But um, still. He's got a background um, that a lot of people were going to find shocking. Absolutely. Uh, I, you know, and I've been trying to catch up with Mundo. We've crossed paths at other law enforcement conferences uh, and just missed each other. So this was very fortuitous. Um, you and I saw him sitting there. We didn't even know who we were until somebody told me. Um, this is a convicted murderer. Um, that, it, And you hear in his interview, he even talks about murders he wasn't charged with. Uh, this is one of the most... Uh, eye-opening, uh, almost scary interviews I think we've ever done, Morgan. This uh, Mundo is very honest. He admits his wrongdoings. He did his time, and according to our justice system, you do your time, you paid your, your debt to society, and he's now a free man. Uh, he has become a Christian, and, and by all accounts and appearances, it seems to me like he's living that life, which in, in my book you know, gives him more credibility. So um, don't want to waste a lot of time here because we want you to hear a story. And, and based on the reaction we get from you, the listeners, there may be a part two to this. Um, we, as you'll see towards the end of the interview, we only scratched the surface with what oh, he has boy. to tell us. We, we didn't get, you know, and, um, you know, real quick before we get into it again, just, you know, go visit us, Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars, visit us, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We'll have the link to his book up there. I will tell you. Um, books, not cheap. Uh, it's, uh, there's a textbook or there's a book that they use for classes. Um, I'll put that link up there. It's the second edition. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's, but he's got some movies, American me. He was featured in that. I mean, there's a lot of stuff this guy has done. So, but just, you know, just do that. Follow us on social media at game crimes on Twitter, games of crime podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, also go join, uh, our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato over at game of crimes fans. Just type that in. Uh, answer a couple questions. And, you know, normally say, you know, we talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. This is mm -hmm. definitely that story. Absolutely. There was a time when Mundo was as hard as they came. Absolutely. And, and you know, for our longtime listeners, we occasionally, this is a show about heroes. Occasionally we throw in a former bad guy just to give you an insider's look of what really goes on on the crime side of this thing. And, and <laughs> this one is very eye-opening, I got to tell you. Mundo... He's he's a good speaker. You'll see he's he's uh, he doesn't come across braggadocious, uh, self centered, but he comes across very truthful. Yeah, and he he'll give you some background. Now we recorded this uh, at the gang conference, so I've done a lot of can. I, this is the raw conversation. I've made no edits to it other than for sound and quality. So this is the way it went down. So um, you know this is one of those things, Murph. I mean, this is the way. Uh, I think this is the way to learn. You have to learn mm -hmm. what it's really like on the street if you're going to be effective. So if you don't know anything about the Mexican Mafia, um, I will tell you, like I said, his book, we'll put it on our uh, page, but it's called Mexican Mafia from Altar Boy to Hitman, the Gang of Gangs. Uh, La M.A., M.A., Mexican Mafia was the Gang of Gangs. And uh, you're going to hear 
hear about it from Mundo, but Murph, we can't get to it unless I ask you. And this is truly, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes? This is one, ladies and gentlemen, that you really do need to get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. This is one of the most eye-opening interviews we've ever done. So let's hear from Mundo. Everybody, welcome back. As we are doing down here at the Southern California Gang Conference, we've got some very interesting people. And the next person we have is very interesting. You might walk by him on the street, wouldn't, uh, you know, you'd say, hey, nice guy. There you go. Walk by him until you pick up his book. His book is called Mexican Mafia, The Gang of Gangs, The Life of Ramon Mundo Mendoza from Alto Boy to Hitman. This is actually the second edition talking about the Mexican Mafia. So, Mundo, bienvenidos. Hey. Nice, nice to be on board. Glad to meet you. Hey, that's, we really, truly appreciate you taking the time to give us an interview. Um, we were talking yesterday or earlier this week where our paths have crossed, but we didn't know each other at the time. And and after I didn't even find out you were at a conference we were at because I was wanting to reach out and contact you. And they're like, oh, yeah, he was just here. And I'm like, where is he? Where is he? Well, he left. Right. right. <laughs> and see, I call that Murphy's Law because if anything can go wrong, it usually does. So, but here we have your name on it, right? (laughs) (laughs) But glad to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, so Mundo, um, actually, it's funny too because in this book, you gave this book to Murph. You guys traded books, and in there it says, Steve Murphy, God bless you, Ramon Mundo Mendoza, CDC number B25376. So, that that was your corrections, right? My California Department of Corrections prison number, yes, right. And then, but you said, uh, but you added a, a unique line on there. You said, darkness will never prevail. What did you mean by that? Darkness is the world that I entered, like many uh, people that become, that make decisions to go the wrong way in life. Uh, they enter a dark world. And uh, and many don't make it out of that world. I, I thought I wasn't going to make it out of that world myself. And uh, so now, today, there is a battle going on. Uh, of course, not only spiritually, I'm a born-again uh, Christian, All right, uh, but also from, from law enforcement's perspective on the streets, there, there's a war going on against gangs, cartels, you name it, drugs, you name it. So that represents darkness to me. So when I say darkness will never prevail, uh, uh, that's what I mean, literally, that in the end, uh, the good will prevail. Well, let's not go all the way back to the beginning to when you were a babe and, you know, diapers and stuff. But wh- give us an idea. Give us a sense. Where did you grow up at? What was life like, you know, as a, as a young man, you know, t- preteen, teenager? Where were you growing up at? I was uh, I was born in East L.A., like just like the movie, you know, Cheech and Chong movie. <laughs> uh, I was born in East L.A., uh, raised in uh, the Boyle Heights area, very notorious area, uh, east of downtown Los Angeles. Uh, in a housing projects, uh, housing projects was known as uh, Estrada Courts, and uh, in the in the Latino or the Mexican American uh, gang community and the non-gang community, uh, it was known as Barrio Nuevo. Uh, it was a World War II projects uh, at uh, in the forties, and uh, then it was um, sec- what's called Section Eight. Which mm-hmm. is uh, uh, the low subsidized income, housing, yeah. Low income families, and uh, my family was part of this low income uh, group of people, and then from there the the gang started Barrio Nuevo VNE. Uh, so in the the gangs, the way they're structured in Los Angeles, they're a G- 
geographically uh, delineated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like if you go to any city and you go to a suburb, you see the sign of that suburb. Uh, Urbandale, for example, from Des Moines. Des Moines, Iowa, you have Urbandale, suburb, and every, everywhere in the country you have suburbs. Uh, with the gangs, you know when you're entering a certain gang by viewing the graffiti, which I call the newspaper of the streets. So you know you're in V&E, you know you're in White Fence territory, et cetera, et cetera, 18th Street, whatever. And so uh, I was born in V&E, and I ultimately became a gang member. But before I became a gang member, uh, I was a well-adjusted kid, academically uh, uh, smart in school. I was an altar boy. Uh, the Catholic Church had a great influence on my family and others uh, in our community. Hence the subtitle of uh, Altar this Boy book, to Hitman. Yeah. Altar Boy to Hitman. And uh, never in my wildest dreams did I think, or my family, or the people around me, that I would become a gang member because that's how well adjusted I was. I had three role models in life, positive role models Father Garcia from Our Our Lady of Resurrection, the church that I attended. Uh, John F. Kennedy, who was the president. He was Irish. He was Catholic, charismatic, and my family loved him. Uh, And most of the Latino families uh, loved uh, JFK. And the third one was Sandy Koufax, uh, pitcher for the L.A. Dodgers. Mm -hmm. I loved him. He was my idol, uh, you know, one of my main idols. Let's talk about your family real quick. Um, which generation, uh, where's your family originally from, Mexico or? My family is originally from Chihuahua, Mexico, and uh, my many of my ancestors fought with Pancho Villa. You know, they were oh, re- revolutionaries. Uh, we have photographs of them with their bullets and the whole thing. And my grandpa moved with my grandmother in the, right after the, the revolution in it ended in 1917, and when they moved to the U.S., they came to the U.S. Uh, my grandpa worked for the railroad in Kansas, and uh, he moved to our Kansas City, Kansas. I know exactly where they said I'm from Kansas. There you go. See, and Steve, he said it correctly. He said Arkansas City. It's not Arkansas City. It's Arkansas City. <laughs> I used to correct my mom when I was a kid. Mom, it's Arkansas City. She said, no, that for us, it's Arkansas Arkansas. City. It's the Arkansas River. I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, I mean, they didn't want no association with anything, but they didn't want to be associated with mistaken for Arkansas. Right. So they, you know, it was... It wasn't as bad as getting mistaken for a different gang, but boy, th- th- those could <laughs> there, be fighting words. Yeah. <laughs> same, same way of yeah. traveling, but yeah. So uh, my mother was born in Arkansas City in 1928. Uh, she came into this world in 1942. Grandma got homesick. Uh, my grandparents owned property in Mexico. I call it a plantation because they had a cotton field there and a lot of houses and other family members lived there. Grandpa was the, the, the patriarch. And so they all packed up in 1942 and moved back to Chihuahua, to uh, a, a little town north of Juarez, as, as you're entering uh, or before the city of Chihuahua, which is the capital. And mom was blown away. She's 14 years old at the time. All her friends are U.S. She's a U.S. citizen. She don't want, know nothing about Mexico, but she had to go back. Not too long after, she got pregnant of me, 19, sometime in 1949, and uh, she came to the U.S. pregnant of me. My real dad wasn't the marrying kind. 
didn't want to have anything to do with me. So she came to L.A. with a cousin, and they worked in restaurants as waitresses. And that's where she met my stepdad. Wow. So, I mean, now, did your your mother was born in the U.S., but did your grandparents teach her Spanish? Was she pretty fluent? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in any Mexican household... Uh, uh, where Spanish is the predominant language, even if, if you're in the U.S., they're going to learn, their, 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 they're going to know their, their Spanish. Mm-hmm. And so she was fluently bilingual by the time she was 14. Okay. So when she moved out here, it was a piece of cake. And most families are pretty fluent. Uh, it, it, the longer you stay here, the more your succeeding generations uh, start losing that, you know, and they speak more English, which is the way it should be, I think. Right. Well, so let's talk about you. I mean, you, like I said, you're an altar boy and stuff, but you're living in V&E territory. What kind of things did you, when we, when did you first kind of become aware that there there were these things called gangs and that they were not good? Immediately. And, and, and we used to, the, I say we, I was a brain. I was considered a brain in, in school. So we used to uh, make fun. We used to make fun of the gang members amongst mm-hmm. the brains. Uh, we would uh, look at the way they dress. You know, they wear khakis or, or friscos or whatever, baggy pants, right. uh, Pendleton shirts or sir guys. Uh, they, they were tattooed. Uh, they were different than the normal guys. And so amongst us, we would make fun. Oh, here comes a cholo. We refer to them as cholos or pachucos. That's another term. And so uh, I was one of those guys making fun of these guys. Uh, but never lost on us was the fact that these guys were different, unique. They commanded fear, uh, some some respect. Uh, we wouldn't dare laugh at them in their face right. or anything like that. Uh, but I was not one of the gang guys. But it's immediate. You know, being aware of their presence is immediate. Crime scenes all the time nearby. We'd hear the sirens. You see the chalk, you know, when, you know, wherever the, somebody got shot and, and the crime scene guys are there. So growing up, I mean, uh, uh, we're, you're exposed to it. So that doesn't make you predisposed because uh, from the neighborhoods, I like to say uh, there's three major career paths that are produced from a, a Chicano neighborhood. Cops, preachers, and gang members. Mm. We could be eating at the same table. You know, war heroes, mm-hmm. war participants. I, the warrior mentality existed like in any household. You know, what do you talk about? You talk about the service in the military of your ancestors, your uncles, you know, uh, other people. We talked about Pancho Villa. I wanted for my great uncle. I wanted him to tell me everything about that, you know. And uh, so now uh, growing up, I didn't lose that. You know, the warrior mentality still existed. I wanted to talk. I wanted to hear the war stories and everything. So I was just like any red-blooded American wanting to hear those stories as I excelled in school, as I looked at the crap that was going uh, around in in the neighborhoods, the gang warfare stuff. You didn't have to participate. You had decisions you could make. You had choices you could make. I hadn't made any bad choices yet. Hey, we're going to take a quick break uh, from our interview with Mundo. Everybody hold on for a second because we want to talk to you about a brand new advertiser we have. And this one I'm excited about, too, because the Grammarly is something, you know, it's a 
capability we both have needed years ago before Grammarly even existed. You and I, Murph, were in the business of writing reports. You and I are in the business of going to court and have somebody pick apart our writing sentence by sentence, word by word, you know, period by period. It was so important we communicate the right tone and effectively communicate. You know what? It, it doesn't matter what your job is. Communication is one of the most important things that you need out there. And if you're issuing written uh, f- documents to your personnel, you need to be precise. You need to set the right tone. It needs to be positive. You want to avoid negativity, negativity because that certainly doesn't promote morale in the workplace. Um, and that's what Grammarly does. With their tone feature and their positive tone feature, you come across more professional. It's all about communication. Look, um, I'm, I, I'm writing, I, I write a lot of stuff right now for PR, public relations, for the news. Um, I've got an appearance coming up on one of the news stations, you know, talking about stuff. I have to write effectively because this is going to be on national news. It's going to be on air. I'm writing a book. You know, I've got to be able to check my spelling. If I've got the right tone, am I doing the right things? And look, you've even got a neat little thing from one of our previous guests that you get to use Grammarly for. Absolutely. We've got, uh, if you remember Peter Forselli, who was with uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, he was a whistleblower. Well, he's writing a book about his whole thing. And, and he honored me by asking me to write the foreword for his book, which I just finished up. And thankfully, I had Grammarly <laughs> because the suggestions that came across there made it sound much, much better than it would have been if Murph had just been writing it on his own. Uh, this couldn't have been better timing. Um, so thank you, Grammarly, for coming across and supporting us, and we're now supporting you. Yeah, so when it comes to work, just remember, communication is key. Even if you don't have a writing job, folks, we're all in the business of communication. It works wherever you do. I, I use it on multiple platforms. I've got it on email, my Google Docs, uh, mm-hmm. even in Scrivener, things like that. Grammarly is everywhere I need them to be to support me. They have a ton of other features, too, uh, You know, like Advanced Spelling Murph. That's helpful for you. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, It even autocorrects 119 to 911 the way it should be. So, <laughs> you know, guys, and look, grammar, punctuation, conciseness, all of the things to make you a better communicator, to make you more effective in what you do. So the right tone can move any project forward when you get it just right with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash tone to download and learn more about Grammarly Premium's advanced tone suggestion. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot slash tone. Now let's get back to Mundo and Murph. So back during that time, so could you have, of those three potential occupations, could you have three of the same, uh, three occupations from a same family? Could oh. be a gang member, a priest, and a cop all in the same family? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure, cops and gang members. Mm-hmm. And then the preachers, there were there were many, and in some, like you say, in the same household, yeah, like a, a preacher and a cop or a preacher and a gang member. But 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 the more common combination was uh, uh, law enforcement and gang members coexisting in the same household. Mm. You know, make and, for some interesting Christmas dinners, huh? And very awkward, <laughs> uh, pregnant silences, <laughs> things cow. like that. You know, yeah. it's like wow, uh, judgment. You know, the cop looking down on the gang member, the gang member looking at him like, I'll, I'll still kick your ass, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And it's like, yep. what do you do? You're, you're blood. So you kind of, well, don't let me catch you because I will bust you kind of yeah. thing, you know. Wow. So well, well, let me ask you, when's the first time you saw real violence happen? First time you saw like a dead body or saw something really serious go down? You know, the, the, the actual... The, the one thing that stands out in my mind, there were there were many, like, after the fact, 
things that, where you'd see the, like I say, the crime scene chalk and all that. But I remember an incident in school where our quarterback from our team in junior in Stevenson Junior High School uh, was throwing a pass out to Art Hernandez. Art Hernandez was the our our star wide receiver, and all of a sudden, instead of running under the ball to catch it, he started zigzagging and he ran off the field and off and away and off the school ground. And then we sounds like Forrest Gump. Yes, (laughs) it does. Well, then we look and we see Black Bean. Black Bean was a known gang member from the King Cobras, uh, a a street gang, and he's like following him intently, like like trying to trying to run him down. But Art's too fast, so Mm -hmm. nothing happened to Art. We found out later that he had a a small caliber handgun, and he was going to shoot him for some uh, verbal disrespect. You know the jocks. The jocks in, in school are like any jocks in any school. They, they think they're tough, and they probably are. Mm-hmm. But but gang members don't play the a fair fight thing. If they think you're going to whip their ass, they'll get a knife or they'll get a gun. They'll, they'll get their equalizer. I, I can't remember which Jesus. Mexican comic it was, but he was. Uh, it might have been George George Ramirez or something. He says, you know, he says, I know Mexican judo. You ever heard of Mexican judo? I've heard it mentioned, but you don't know if I have a knife. You don't know if I have a gun. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. So, so that was my the, the the first incident that stands out in my mind, and and I thought, man, this is a this is a badass guy you don't want to mess with because he's coming at you with a gun, an equalizer, and it was kind of like a lesson to me also in, in later in life is that there fair fights. They're cool. No such thing as a fair fight. Yeah. But the winner of a fight is the one that walks away. Right. Right? Healthy. Even in the war. You know, if, if you're fighting against your enemy, I mean, and you're there, you're talking your life's on the line. Forget the fair fight. You take out your enemy and, so, you know, I, I would have talks later in life with uh, uh, police officers and say, yeah, we have the same concept, but they're applied differently, obviously. So that, that was the first time. And then I started experiencing turbulence at home with my stepfather. So I rebelled against his authority. Uh, he used to hit me a lot. Uh, I never blamed that for my decision to become a gang member because there's, there's a lot of people in my family that were hit by him. Uh, one became uh, she, a 35-year uh, veteran of a police agency that mm-hmm. I won't name just so she's not embarrassed. But but that's a that was a, a direct like a cousin or a my sister, your sister. So so to your point, Murph, in the same household, right? Yeah, right. So I had a, a sister that did thirty five years for a local agency, a police agency. Another sister, successful uh, insurance agent. There was no gang element in any of my family roots at all. There was military, there was public service, uh, things like that, but never get, I was the first, I broke the mold, so to speak, mm-hmm. and uh, the black sheep, uh, proverbial uh, black sheep. So uh, my turbulence with my stepdad led to decisions to rebel against authority, to rebel against his authority, to run away from home, uh, and it was an escalation from petty Crimes like joyriding in right. stolen vehicles to sniffing glue to taking pills and stuff like that. Truancy. Uh, it progressively got worse. And then I started going to juvenile hall. And from there, it, the process of what I call being state raised, raised by the state of California. Right. 
So let's talk about that a little bit more, being raised by the state of California. Um, what was it like during those times back in Juvenile Hall? Uh, you know, be- because, you know, we hear a lot of stories about that's where a lot of indoctrination takes place, right? I mean, that's where you become vulnerable. You associate with other gang members. Was that kind of the way that they started pulling you into the gang? Was it always from the outside or did they kind of have a way, a practice to also recruit from the inside? Once. Once you enter juvenile hall as a as a first time youth offender, uh, the very first thing that I noticed in L- in Los Angeles is that it the wards, as they call them, the inmates, were polarized by ethnicity. The blacks were congregated together. The Mexicans, Mexican Americans. Uh, uh, hung together and in the whites so it's very first thing i noticed and who did i see there but black bean the the guy that came <laughs> right, right. Our, our receiver but that was a shock right you thought he was yeah no shock he was going to end up in jail at some point right? oh yeah well that's that's a gimme on on his regard i, I wasn't surprised by it. i was just surprised that i'm there with him now hmm. and i i see him he, he nods at me recognition but he still has his little arrogant style about him there was another gang member from his neighborhood named bugsy so bugsy kind of took sympathy towards me because he knew i was one of those we call ourselves a square from delaware you know because i was a square i Mm -hmm. I wasn't a gang member and uh, i didn't speak the lingo although i heard it and i understood it but i didn't speak the street uh talk or anything so bugsy took me under his wing and he gave me the do's and don'ts you stick with your own ethnic group you don't show weakness. If anybody disrespects you, you respond immediately with violence. So I got into a lot of fights, and mostly with black guys. Uh, black, it wasn't the animosity between Mexicans and blacks. The way I remember it, even as I became an adult offender later in life, was not predicated on race. It was predicated on power, on who was going to be the big dog on the yard, so to speak. Give give an example. What what would constitute uh, a violation of respect that would warrant a violent response? There was an incident. I'm in a in a in a holding tank, a trustee tank. There's three blacks and myself. And there was this one guy. I, I can't remember his name, but it's in my book. Right now, I just uh, can't remember. That's the reason for a book. You don't have to remember. Exactly. It. Just read the book. <laughs> so he uh, he he he's joking, right? You know, you you know what playing the dozens is. You know, when you're when you're joking with, you know, when you're telling sexual jokes. So he made a joke uh, that s- somewhat I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He said, so what would you do if you're in a cage with three gorillas and the three gorillas are going to do you sexually? He used the F word. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you have a choice between jumping in the water and drowning or letting the three gorillas punk you. Right. And, 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 I, and I looked at him and I said, oh, I'd probably do the three gorillas. You know, I, I gave a smart answer. And, then, and all the guys start laughing. But the other two were not as aggressive. He had some, some intent in mind. You know, it's mm-hmm. like if I gave the wrong answer, then he was going to go take it a step further. Because you know, the, the blacks in juvenile hall were, they had a, they were known for sexually attacking whites, white inmates that were weak. Hmm. And uh, there were there, there was rapes all the time at juvenile. One of my first 
uh, experiences. I think it was the first night I was in the day room in orientation, and there was a white inmate was raped sexually by a black inmate. It's in the Gang of Gangs, uh, that incident. And, uh, and when he raped him, I'm looking at all the guys in the day room because the lights are off, it's time to go to you know go to sleep. We're on mattresses on the floor. Nobody is making an attempt to intercede for this guy. So I'm thinking, well, maybe he has it coming. I don't understand how nobody could try to help him. And this guy is petrified, and the black inmate has a, a shank mm-hmm. that uh, over him. So the guy complied, and then he raped him. Right? And I'm thinking, you know, I would never. If that if somebody tried that on me, I would fight. Mm-hmm. You can stab me, but I would fight. Even though I was a square or non-gang member, I had that instinct that no, that, that's not going to happen to me. Why did this guy? Uh, why didn't he resist? What you know? At least try. He didn't. He was scared. He was petrified. So they read that. They read body language, and the predators take advantage of the, of the victims of the prey. Mm. So give an example of how, uh, like, if you wanted to avoid being, uh, have a predator attack, I mean, what, what's the body language that you saw later that you learned that said, don't mess with me? Uh, avoid, when you, when you avoid somebody's eyes, for example, a, a new, a fish, a new arrival, when they arrive, you know, fish on the line, you know, the fish are arriving and, and, and we're looking for telltale signs of weakness. And number one body language is avoiding eye contact. Usually, if I'm walking in a new prison, I arrive at San Quentin, I'm the fish, I'm actually looking in the group to see if I see a, a homeboy or something like that. So my body language is communicating, hey, I'm cool, I'm comfortable in my skin, right? But if I'm avoiding eyes and, and looking down or looking somewhere else, there's catcalls that come all the time. Hey, hey, baby, oh, you are fine, that one's mine, and you know stuff like that. They're just catcalls. And so the way you handle them, you, you can throw a joke and say, hey, baby, you better watch it because I'd be doing some touching up too, you know. And So if you joke around that way and you're bantering, then everybody's cool. They're looking for somebody to show fear. Fear, yeah. weakness, weak. yes. They're looking that to, to, to understand. They say, that's mine. And then those are the ones that they, they work them. They, don't, they, they may not rape them, but they can pressure them. Uh, uh, relieve them of their canteen goods once they're established uh, on the yard. Get them to do things for them so they so they don't have to be touching or doing the dirty work. You're always testing, testing new arrivals. So going back to this uh, cage uh, joke that uh, the guy said, was it Big Mike? I can't remember, but it was a big black guy. And uh, so, you know, the joking was there, but I took it as disrespect. I said, this guy was was talking sexual joke and he was insinuating that he wanted to do something to me sexually. So what I did is I got the mop bucket. I, I didn't make a big deal out of it because uh, we were trustees. So we would mop, you know, the, 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 the floors. So I got the mop bucket. I emptied it out. Got the, the steel portion of it, where you the ringer. Mm-hmm. And boom, I hit him upside the head with the ringer. Almost knocked him out. He was convulsing a little, but 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 he didn't go out. And the staff ran in. They got me. They gaffled me. They locked me up. They came for him. Took him to the hospital. Physically much bigger than me. Probably would have kicked my ass. Mm-hmm. So I figured, hey, 
I probably can't, I, no such thing as a fair fight, right? No such thing as a fair fight. You know, you want to, you're going to walk away. Okay. So I'm locked up. They locked him up near me in a lockup, a uh, uh, single cell thing. He says, Hey, man. So I was just joking. Like, hey, you got to watch how you joke, man. You know, and so that. Did that constantly. establish? Did that establish some street cred? You know, as they say, street cred for you. That incident right there, when you smashed it up against his head. That was a little. I mean, yes, it did in that setting. But you you go to other settings. I went. I started going to camps. I agitated a riot against blacks. Well, hold on for you. Let's so let's talk about at this level that you're at right now. About how old are you right now? You're still a juvenile. About thirteen. 13? Wow. Yeah. Okay, I was thinking 17, but 13, okay. What was the most serious thing you had done by that point that got you locked up? I mean, GTA, riding in stolen vehicles, uh, nothing of a violent nature. Okay. And GTA, explain for our listeners. Yeah, Grand Theft Auto. Uh, And not the game, the real life thing. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Grand Theft Auto, if you were joyriding in a car, like I ran away from home on the 4th of July weekend, of 1964 uh, between junior high and high school and my landlord's son our landlord lived in front of us and his son was a gang member from VNE and uh, and uh, and and he came I, there was a knock on the window of my bedroom I was grounded for some infraction you know my stepdad and so he invited me to run away from home with him and I'm like yeah let's do this so we ran away from home so there, we're on the outlaw trail, burglaries, uh, riding in stolen vehicles. So on the day that, uh, we, that we were caught in a stolen vehicle, uh, I still remember the song by the Kinks. And you're going to laugh, and, and some people probably think I'm making this up. The whole song played, You Really Got Me, you know. <laughs> and lo and behold, when the chase ended, they had us, the, the California Highway Patrol, we finally stopped, or Maxi, because he was driving, stopped, and uh, we, you know, they made us get, they, they, they pulled us out of the car, and they beat him with flashlights. So I'm waiting for my butt whipping. They didn't beat me because I wasn't driving. See, I wasn't the one eluding, so they uh, gave him an ass whipping, and they took us to a local uh, police station. Our parents came and picked us up, um, you know, so we went, uh, they let us go, yeah, right away there. Uh, but we still had to face the charges of uh, my charges. Even though I was joyriding, as, as they called it, it was still uh, legally uh, Grand Theft Auto or GTA, mm-hmm. as we call it. Did you get your, your beating when you got home? Uh, no, because see, that was going to happen. But my dad and Maxie's dad were talking. Hey, sorry about this, blah, blah. I could hear him outside. I went in the front door and out the back door. Oh, Gotcha. I took off on the run again. Again? Wow. Yeah. So, because you thought you were going to get a big beating? Because I didn't want to hear it. You okay. know, when, I was getting to the age uh, now with my stepdad where I wasn't, put, I was verbally confrontational now and stuff. And, and uh, he was starting to show like, oh, shit, you know, this guy's getting physically where he can stand up to me and this and that. I just didn't want to hear it. And I didn't want to have to lift a hand. I never had lifted a hand against him, and I, and I never did. But I didn't want to be in that position, so I just went out the back door and on the run again. So what point now, uh, so this sounds like the, you're set, you've set the stage really well for uh, associating with the gang, right? So you started doing all of this stuff. Is the next step to join a gang? Well, I started doing time, and I started extending that. The first stretch I did 
was October of 64. They picked me up for truancy, runaway, uh, beyond control of my parents, and I get committed to the Cal. I went to camp. I escaped twice from camp, and then they sent me back down to juvenile hall. They uh, got reclassified and committed me to the California Youth Authorities. We call it CYA. And uh, uh, so my, the first, I went to the processing center in Norwalk, and then from Norwalk, I was sent to Paso Robles, which is in uh, central California. And in Paso, I, I ended up doing about 10 months. I got out in the middle of the Watts riots. 1965, the Watts riots were going on. And uh, and I, in the street that I lived in at that time was gang infested. What I learned in the California Youth Authority, uh, I learned it was like an indoctrination you learn different things, like, for example, using a high-caliber weapon when performing a robbery, an armed robbery, to, de- to deter resistance. If you got a guy with a shotgun or a, or a 45 versus a little 38 or a 22 handgun, some people will look at those pea shooters and not, maybe not be intimidated. Mm-hmm. If you use a high-caliber weapon and you produce it, it's like, oh, shit, I, I don't want... That thing is going to put a hole through me, so it deters resistance. You learn that. You learn uh, altering license plates when you're committing a crime, uh, you know, stealing a car, you know, on things like that. Remember, up to this point, I've been involved in fights and riots in, in the system, uh, proving myself and everything, establishing my rep, uh, uh, you know, uh, accumulating a criminal resume, but on the streets, still nothing violent-wise with regard to gangs. So I do this time, I get violated in December for associating with known parolees, and I parlayed a 90-day violation into three years and two months. (laughs) And and again, in the... How did you do that? Just screwing up. Yeah. So, but while you're inside, while I'm inside, so you were 13, you had 10 months. I mean, you're 14, so you're getting to the close to where you're getting close to 18 years old now. I'm getting right? close to that. Yeah, I got actually, I got out in February, I think, in early '69. So that would make me uh, 79, 89. I was born in '49, so that make me about 19 years old when I get out, and I, that's when I joined the gang formally, right? Why? Uh, I because I was already part of that madness as far as uh, my 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 extended family, my brothers. Now I had the, this family that I call family was now made in the in the jail system. All these guys were were all of us were were uh, were were bad boys, and everybody except a few of us came from a gang. I came from a gang, but I wasn't formally hadn't joined the gang formally yet, but I was accepted in their world because of my performance as a, as a bad guy behind bars. So did they find you or did you go seek them out? Uh, no, Big Weddle, the guy that sponsored me, um, he told me, he says, when, when you get out, uh, we're getting out around the same time. When, when you get out, he says, uh, we're going to get you into the neighborhood in, in the projects. I said, I'm, I'm ready. Let's do it. So, what does it mean to be sponsored? It, well, somebody has, if you, for example, if uh, if you are considered gang member material, violent, uh, somebody I want 
you know, with me in, in the neighborhood performing all the deeds that we do, then I'm the one that, that brings you up, says, okay, you're, uh, you know, I, I, I want to bring this guy up for membership uh, or, you know, for, for to get jumped in. The guys around, yeah, you know, especially if they know me because they knew me. So the, the tinies, every, every street gang, uh, Mexican-American street gang has subdivisions. We call them clicas or cliques within the neighborhood. So V&E had the cutdowns, the tinies, the midgets, the peewees, and they were made up of guys of similar age groups. And so that's what the tinies were. So like if this is baseball, it's kind of like having a farm team. You go to a farm team, you mm-hmm. go to AAA, to AA, AA, and then pretty soon you're in the majors. You're in right? the majors. I hadn't reached the majors. That's the prison gang. But I'm 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 in the I'm in the minors. I'm laboring in the minors there with uh, with the street gang and I, and I'm, I'm uh, the tinies were the click. They jumped me in in an alley uh, on the day that it was. It's it's a ritual. It's a ceremony. The jumping in uh, ritual. Uh, and there's an older member usually that's there to keep time. And uh, so little Ray from the Sharks was from that click. An older click was there to supervise. He uh, he told me to empty out my pockets like. He said, give me anything you don't want to lose. If you have a ring, a wallet, whatever you don't want to lose, give it, let, me, let me hold it. So I emptied my pockets, gave it to him. And then the guys that were going to assail or jump me in, make sure you don't have any rings on to do any, any, any damage. You know, because they wanted to be the whole I, the whole pre uh, the whole reason for a jump in ceremony within any street gang is to prove your worth. It's a ritual to begin with, but it also you de- you're demonstrating your your worthiness and your your manhood by fighting back. You're not supposed to kick, but I got kicked <laughs> in this one because I, I I gave Bugs a bloody nose and I gave uh, I think Big Wedo a black eye. And, uh, and, and, but, but they beat the crap out of me. You know, I mean, I, at some, at one point I just had to cover up, but, but I, I know somebody kicked me. I just don't know who. How long did, how long you said somebody's keeping time? How long did this go on? It was, it was supposed to be a minute. I'm sure it was because little Ray was keeping uh, track. But, uh, for me it was, uh, I don't know, you know, five minutes maybe because mm-hmm. you're on the receiving end of a, of a butt whipping. So we notice when we've talked to other folks like in outlaw motorcycle gangs, they've got kind of a very structured thing. Like, first of all, you, you, you know, you're a, you hang around, which they allow you to do, but then you're a prospect and an associate, you know, you kind of go through the ranks is, but what's the, what's the way they bring you in? It's just like you said, they were sponsored the big, or what do you say is Weddle? Big Weddle. Big Weddle. Um, is it just that they take his word for it? In other words, he, they. Oh no, no, no. You have to have an, I came in overqualified. Because of my prison, uh, or not prison, my my juvenile record and all that, so I I was overqualified, and it's like, man, we want this guy in our in our hood. So you know, but but it's similar. What you're saying is similar. In the perfect world, uh, you you grow up together. You you start your 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 bad deeds start escalating. If you're a, a poop butt, then they don't want you in. You know, you want you're a what? A poop butt. You know, a some, poop butt. Yeah, weak. A weak guy. Weak. Okay. Yeah. Some some somebody's not you know strong. You know, then they don't want you in. And so uh, that you know that that's essentially the way it works. And it's got a similar structure, except there's not a. It's not like the military where you go, okay, well, now you're uh, at this level, level one, level two. No, nothing like that. Uh, it's, but, but it is structured in a different way. It's understood universally in the uh, L.A. and Southern California street gang 
uh, community within uh, Chicanos, you know, Mexican-American gangs. And so I get jumped in. Little Ray says, okay, ya estuvo. That's it. You know, uh, time's up, this and that. Everybody's hugging me. I'm, I'm bleeding. They're hugging me. Congratulations. Little Ray raises my hand like a victorious boxer, right? Like I won and I got my butt kicked, right? <laughs> so he raises my arm, you know, and I'm, I'm feeling good. You know, I'm, I'm feeling euphoric. I don't feel no pain. I don't feel nothing because I've, I've been made, you know, into mm-hmm. the street gang. You say yeah, it's almost like mafia. Now you're a made man. Yep, you're a made you've guy. You've been accepted. Yeah, yeah. But what happens? Have there been instances where people to go get jumped in and they just totally wuss out and it's like, yeah, we picked the wrong guy. Does everybody? Yeah, you jump them out. So what yeah, is if that? a guy if a guy turns out to be weak and you, he's like this guy, this guy's not going to cut it. Then what they do is they jump him. It's like the jump in process, but probably worse because they they kick him, break ribs, you know, whatever. They jump him out of the neighborhood, you know. And at that point, when you're jumped out, is there uh, is that I mean the end of it? Unless you do something. In other words, is there, you know, sometimes like. When it gets real serious, you know, somebody puts a contract out on you. Every time they see you, they want to kick your ass. But once you're jumped out, is that it? They just kind of ignore you? Yeah, yeah they ignore you. You're done. And and, and you, you you probably want to fade away. You probably, probably want away. to go anywhere. You want to go anywhere. Go yeah. somewhere anywhere. You yeah. don't want to be around because you'll be a punching bag if you stay mm. around. Well, you made an interesting statement. You said the major leagues are in the prison, right? So yeah. how long did it take you before you became an adult, before you went to prison the first time? Well, remember, I, I'm released in early 69. You were 19 years old at that yeah, time, Yeah, right? 19 years old. I, uh, I get jumped into the neighborhood. Uh, my sister comes home and tells me, hey, I, I saw David at, at a teen center. David is a member, an older guy, but he's a family friend, uh, but he's a member of a rival street gang. He's a member of White Fence. Uh, which the the Interstate Five, the freeway separates VNE and White Fence, and and we go to the same church, we attend the same schools and everything, but we're two different, distinct gangs. So with churches and schools, is that like neutral territory? Neutral, yeah. New, suppose churches for sure, schools. A lot of times the gangs would meet and they, there'd be fights, this and that, but uh, but. That was like a common denominator that brought us together. Okay. Community functions, you'd have the two rival gangs uh, eyeballing each other. At the theater, uh, fights at the theater, fights at the Sears. We had the, one of the old Sears buildings there uh, where the shoppers would meet. So I, uh, I go to the community center to seek out David because he's a family friend. I'm not even thinking of the fact that he's a rival gang member. That's me not thinking. Mm-hmm. So I go into enemy territory. As a newly jumped in? As VNE. a newly VNE member. I go into enemy territory, and I, uh, I walk into the teen center. Big mistake. Uh, all the party goers, you could hear oldies. There's, you know, girls and guys, you know, there. They're drinking. They got their Budweiser and stuff. And then it's almost like everything stopped when they see me. And I'm like, oh, shit. I can't walk out because that's showing weakness, you know. So uh, one of the guys said, where are you from, man? And I, I, I don't answer, but you have you can't lie because then that's showing weakness. I said, uh, I'm looking for David. So what David? Uh, David Mungia. Uh, he said, well, who are you? I said, I'm a good friend of his, family friend. So little by little, I, they start surrounding me, right? And an older guy gives a signal 
and they descend on me with beer bottles and two by fours. And Are you armed with anything? I'm not armed. I didn't go there with hostile intentions. Uh, went in there looking for David. So they start beating me. I all I can remember, I, there was there there was no fear. There was my thought process was what a fucked up way to go, and I had I had uh, shamed my neighborhood by putting myself in a position to get myself killed or beat really bad. I could taste my uh, my blood. With the, the beer bottles, I could hear them breaking on my head, and then the blood that was running down and would enter my mouth, I could taste the combination of my blood, the glass, and the beer in my mouth as I was getting beat, and I'm thinking, what a effed up way to go. And then all of a sudden, I heard the voice of, I call her an angel, is I heard the voice of an angel. It was a girl, and she's yelling, leave him alone, he knows David. Leave him alone. And she puts herself between the assailants and me, and it it subsides. It abates. And I'm thinking, wow, that's, this is cool. She's going to save my ass. So I'm trying to stem the flow of blood. And then they all, not all, but some of the guys, hey, hey, man, sorry, Holmes. You know, they're putting out their hands, but I don't shake it because I'm stemming the flow. I said, no, that's okay. Don't worry about it. And I just want to get out of there. So I start walking out of there. The door opens, my car's there, I jump in, and I'm driving. I don't, I'm sitting straight up because I don't want an LAPD black and white to see me bleeding. Then they'll pull me over and I can't get my revenge. Mm-hmm. So I, I make it, what, five, six blocks to the other side of the freeway, to the circle in the housing projects. Some of the homies are out there partying, drinking their bud, and I pull up. I get out of the car under the artificial turf in the circle uh, in the, the the lawn area. We had weapons. We had uh, there was a machete, and we had uh, other other makeshift weapons. Uh, the guy that had the guns, Art Ramos, was out somewhere, so we didn't have access to him. And I didn't want to wait for anything. I wanted to go now while they were still there at, at the teen center. And when you went into the teen center, did they know you were V and E? When I first went in, they didn't know. Okay. So oh, they, yeah, that's right. Now, yeah, they asked, and I did tell them I was from Barrio Nuevo. At, okay. at, at some point during our, our, our back and forth, I did tell them that I was from Barrio Oh, Barrio Nuevo, what are you doing here? You know, I mean, you know, they, they, they started egging, you know, making a joke out of it because I had screwed up. Mm-hmm. But that because you know. that was interesting because you said then they were like oh sorry Holmes so, so why were they apologizing if you were a rival gang was that simply because of her intervention and because you really her inter- didn't her no intervention David? she must have been an older girl with a little respect maternal respect and, and uh, for them to to let up and for somebody not telling her just get out of the way we're, you know that's what I was going to say somebody would just say oh, shut the hell up you know yeah. But yeah. it's, they, they stopped, and they even offered to apologize. And they offered to apologize. They were drunk. I call it drunken apologies and uh, that I was in no mood to receive. But, yeah, I was thankful that, that uh, they stopped beating me, but, but, I'm, but I'm pissed off uh, it's, because I want to I get back. That's a huge mm-hmm. disrespect. Yeah, right? yeah. So it's a disrespect. And, you know, it's funny because it's, I'm still thinking more of the neighborhood, the disrespect to the neighborhood than— than what they did to me, right? Because I'm, I'm alive. I'm, I'm walking. They knew you were V&E, and they disrespected you by beating you up like that and they attacking They disrespected you. the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. And so now I'm at the circle. The guys, 
Let's get them. Let's get them. Let's go back. Yeah. So everybody's getting weapons. And they cram into my 53 Chevy is what I had. And uh, we drive back and uh, park, get off the car. Uh, I, I I barely remember putting it in park. I mean, it lurched forward a little bit. I, said, I hope it's in park, you know. But I but I was the first one out with the machete, and went the front do- uh, towards the front door like double doors. And the guys came up behind me, uh, were coming uh, following me, and uh, the door was ajar. I kicked it open, and uh, one of the guys, uh, Fuzzy, his name was Fuzzy from White Fence, is standing there, and he, he looked at me like in shock because he saw the machete, and. Uh, I swung it one time. He lifted a, a a beer bottle, and somehow, I mean, that down swing instead of hitting him, it hit the beer bottle, and and uh, and you know knocked it out of his hand. And then he cowered. And then I'm thinking, all these guys are running in. I didn't want to catch them with a backswing. Mm-hmm. See, machetes are made for slashing and not for stabbing, mm-hmm. right? So so this one, I was initially using it as a to slash but when i thought of the guys running in i go i don't want to hit one of my guys so i i stabbed him multiple times probably didn't do much damage he, he bled because uh, one of the counts was assault but but uh but i couldn't get him with a slash because it was confined quarters and then uh when i when all the guys the, uh, from my neighborhood ran upstairs to fight the other guys, the white fence guys that were upstairs, the, the main body of, of, uh, of enemy guys, uh, I could hear the rumbling, so I ran up the stairs with the machete. And uh, I don't remember saying this, but one of the eyewitnesses said they saw a tall white guy, because I'm light-skinned, uh, yelling, uh, Que viva Barro Nuevo, long live Barro Nuevo, my neighborhood. So so I, 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 I came up to one guy uh, who turns out to be Bobby Loco, they called him, and I hit him square in the head with the machete. And then I started slashing. After he went down, I started slashing his head and his neck. So I nearly decapitated him. And uh, the other guys took off running down the stairwell and with, with my homeboys in pursuit of them. So then when I, I, when I saw that this guy was already a done deal, or I thought he was, I was going to run behind them but i stopped for a second to 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 check out my handiwork i guess and i was mesmerized i was transfixed i was looking at the guy going through um uh twitching Mm -hmm. you know like uh his death throes i guess and uh and it was like wow this is the first guy i'd ever killed right first major act of violence and uh, besides, besides inside the jail. And I just want to establish that. So that he ended up dying there that day? He ended up dying at the scene. At the scene? Yes. So, and then when I ran down the stairs, the other guy successfully got away. We jumped in the car. We escaped. Um, we, uh, they had a party that night in Pico Rivera, a suburb, uh, homeboys, homegirls. I remember wanting to be alone with my thoughts, okay, just to think about what I had just done. You know, it's... It, it's uh, it was shocking, even for me, the perpetrator. It was just a shock that, that I had done that. It's almost like an out-of-body, like somebody else had done it. And how old were you at this point? Uh, 15, I think, 49, 50. Oh, no, no, not 15. I'm uh, 19. 19. Yeah. So you you, had just, you you weren't out of the California Youth Authority for very long when this happened. Yeah, not very long after that happened. So, so I was arrested 
what's funny is I'm smoking weed with Tony Sandoval, who had just come back from Vietnam. I wanted to go to Vietnam bad, okay? And because uh, I had uncles, cousins, neighbors that that were that had fought, went to Nam, Korea, and so I, I wanted that. That's that warrior mentality thing, you know. I wanted uh, I, I wanted to perform. It wasn't, and I'm just being honest as I tell you this, had nothing to do with serving my country. That sounds noble. Oh yeah, Mundo wanted to serve his country. No, no, no. I, I, I wanted to kill people. Mm-hmm. I wanted to serve my country. I mean, I wanted to. Uh, it was a warrior mentality thing that was in me. I think all of us have it, but we, when we use it to serve a country, then it's it's legalized uh, homicide. But it's not really homicide because we're serving. We're really serving our country when well, you're well. When you're in war, it's different, right? But of course, um, but it, the same effect. But what you're saying is that you had it wasn't about like say being honorable it's just that yeah you wanted to be because it was a legal way to kill somebody want, and not have the yeah, repercussions yeah i wanted that i want to be the, the and, and so i uh now i'm wanted for murder I'm, I'm not thinking of vietnam but i'm there with tony we're smoking weed i'm uh, i'm on the run i uh, i'm wanted and uh and tony made a statement or asked a question that i never forgot he as he's as he's as he's inhaling the joint and handing it to me, he asked me, "So what war are you fighting?" He's needling me, right? Because I'm fighting on the streets against a rival gang, and there's a real war going on in Vietnam, which I want to go to. And so he's teasing me, and I tell him, uh, "I said, take me to Nam, Carnad. So I I can bleed red, white, and blue just like you." You know, so I'm 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 accepting his challenge or his needle <laughs> needling, and then the homicide guys kicked the doors down and they come they came for me. Mm. You know, jeez, yeah. I mean, was there a trial or did you plead guilty or? I ended up pleading guilty to uh, involuntary manslaughter, which I come on for for uh, for a gang homicide. You know, I'm thinking, geez. That's almost like a jaywalking ticket. I mean, it's. Well, yeah. You it got, was premeditated. You went back, you got right. your homies, you got the weapons, yeah. you drove back. You got yeah. knowledge, intent. Yeah, yeah. You get all the elements. I ended up, uh, uh, and, and even then, I wasn't grateful. I cussed out the judge. Uh, uh, I told him, F you and your white mother. On your white family or something like that, your family tree or something. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that's not a good thing to do in court. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right, <laughs> especially to the sentencing judge, right? So in the audience, there's my mom and there's Mrs. Lopez, uh, Bobby Loco's mother, who, who came to the whole proceedings. Both of them are crying, especially at the end when I cussed out the judge and the bailiffs are dragging me out. I call that the point of no return for me. Mm-hmm. And that's where I knew it was done. I, I, I'm, I'm, the rest of my life is now ahead of me, which is going to be the bad shit, you know. And uh, uh, little did I foresee anything uh, and that we'll cover if we have time. But when they're dragging me out, I look at, uh, I look at Mrs. Lopez. I look at my mom. They're both crying. And I always, when I saw Mrs. Lopez, I always had this urge to hug her and tell her I'm sorry for killing your son. But I couldn't do it because of the uh, the macho. You know, there, there's they a macho. The machismo? Yeah, the machismo that machismo. exists. And the fact that you're uh, uh, 
the, the white fence guys are on that side and, and my homeboys are on this side, you can't show that kind of weakness. Yeah, that's why right. I said that would have been showing weakness to yeah. hug the... Yeah, you can. That, that's business for a gang member. That's justifiable killings, you know, as far as they're concerned. And uh, so the mothers are crying for two reasons. Mrs. Lopez, because the animal that took her son is is uh, is laughing at the court and cussing out the judge, and, and, I, and, and I took away her son. My mom is crying because she lost her son to the system. Mm-hmm. So they're both victims, you know, so it was just, and, but did I care? I didn't care. I, you know, I was. But when you said you were at, when you, right after this happened, you want to be alone with your thoughts, did you reflect upon, look, 13 years ago, I was an altar boy? No, you don't reflect on that. You, you, like right, right now, when you say that, we can reflect on it now and all, and I reflected on it uh, at some point afterwards, but there's no serious once you arrive at a certain point in your demented life in that journey there there's many junctures to come many times to sit and think about you know where you're going and all that but if you don't listen to that voice and if you don't go there then you're lost in space you're lost in that world until something dramatic happens or you die what were you sentenced to that day? Six months to four uh, to fifteen years uh, for involuntary manslaughter, and uh, I uh, went to Chino, got processed, went to Soledad, got involved in a riot, uh, got kicked out, went to San Quentin, arrived there in 1970. I was 20 years old when I got there. Uh, I was 21 when I joined the Mexican Mafia. So, yeah, let's stop there before we dive into that. When's mm-hmm. the first time you heard of the Mexican Mafia? When did the first time you knew that it existed? I, I already knew from doing time in YA in the Youth Authority at uh, DVI. I got kicked out of uh, Preston in 67, 1967, and I was in, at DVI for two years. And that's when I arrived at DVI, I, I still remember... Um, there's gun towers and gun towers for a youth offender in a youth institution they don't exist because there's, there's no gun there's towers but they're not they're not manned i mean they're manned but they're not armed okay so now when i see the gun towers i look at it as a status thing i go wow i'm a badass i'm going to a, a, an adult prison it really it really it, it housed both adult and and, and youth offenders but the, the, the gun tower, to me, represented something cool. Instead of, instead of being afraid of it, I, I welcomed it as a, as a status sign, you know, that was going to the big time. As yeah. a sign of respect for you, here comes Mr. Badass, comes he's Mr. coming Badass. in, he's V&E. Exactly. I've, made, I've made the big time. Right. And so your, your performance in prison as a violent person escalates. If you're going to be anybody... From a potential predator looking at a kid getting raped in juvenile hall, right? Thinking, if that's me, I'm going to fight. But you're defending in your mind, in my way of proceeding, I don't want anything like this to happen to me. So consequently, when that guy made that bit, that sexual joke, I hit him with the friggin' mop bucket thing, and I, I, I would respond with violence. That was the advice I was given, and I took it literally and head on. So as you're learning to perform this way to survive, that's your, from, a, from a potential uh, victim and prey, I evolved into a predator. 
And it's not just me. There's other guys that are functioning the same way. We're evolving into predators. And uh, so I learned to be a predator. I, I learned uh, to be uh, a violent guy. Uh, that was my life. All the positive characteristics that you can, you can mention, love, loyalty, respect, honor, all of those are positive characteristics misapplied to the gang world. We use those same characteristics, but for our use, right? Hmm. And uh, so I was an honorable guy, worthy of respect. My homeboys loved me. Uh, there was a unity. There was family. All of those characteristics, but in a gang world now. Right, in a different... So let's talk about, you said the Mexican Mafia. So before we get into it, let's set the stage, because um, it's right there on your book, Mexican Mafia, the Gang of Gangs. Let's talk about... You learned a lot of this, obviously, while you're in prison, but let's let's look at it now. Set the stage for us. Tell us about the Mexican mafia. You know how it's organized, how it's structured, how it runs. I mean, what is? And by the way, what is the purpose of the Mexican mafia? The the Mexican mafia originally started in a youth facility, DVI, Calif uh, a dual vocational institution in Tracy, California, 1957. Uh, the guys that formed it, uh, I rubbed elbows. I met all of them later in life. Uh, they were all teenagers at that time. So their idea of forming the Gang of Gangs was to incorporate or to co-opt all the leaders of the Southern California, mostly L.A., street gangs. So just the leaders and, and to form a gang of gangs to enjoy the creature comforts that men covet when they're doing time. Drugs, control of the drugs, control of the inmate prostitution, uh, you know, extortion, all of the above. And, and, and the, 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 the so-called representative of the Mexican-American inmate population. That was the so-called mission statement of the Mexican mafia back then. Uh, no rules. No, no uh, leader, no godfather, no, 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 no it, it, it was, uh, it, it was like a, a super democratic system where everybody was equal. With their arrogance, nobody would be willing to take orders from anybody anyway, because these are all leaders. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, who wants to take orders from another? Uh, so that's, that's the one place the Me Mexican mafia was the one place to where all the rival gangs could actually come together. Right. Because they had to realize they could either kill each we could kill ourselves or we could band together. That's it. And survive this thing. Well, they already had, there was already a phenomenon in existence, like I mentioned earlier, where Mexican-American inmates, we call them, we call ourselves la raza, the race. Uh, so we would stick together for protection, to protect ourselves from anything else, uh, external, blacks, whites. Whites weren't really a, a, a threat. The blacks were the bigger threat. Well, so, because we're going to talk to somebody later about the Aryan Brotherhood, but was Aryan Brotherhood an issue at all for you when you were in prison? No, Aryan Brotherhood wasn't even in existence yet. But you had some crazy white guys. There were a small percentage. Most of the whites were exploited uh, and pressured by black inmates. So a, a strange phenomena would occur where we would find ourselves protecting or, or teaming up with the, the white inmates, the ones that were worthy, 
the, the weak ones, if you're weak, you're weak. It doesn't matter what color of skin you are. If you're weak and, and, and you surrender your, your goods, your possessions, that's on you. If you're that weak, then screw you. you, know, you, you we don't, we don't uh, recognize you anyway. But if you're not weak and somebody's trying to pressure you, we're, we're, we're going to help them. And so we identified with white inmates and, and, of course, with Mexican because that's the way we were polarized from, juve, from juvenile hall. So, Mexican Mafia is in existence from 50, in 57, and uh, I have articles, I do a lot of research, and I'm a historian, uh, of many events that w w took place in those early years, riots, uh, uh, attacks, a couple of homicides, uh, and one of the articles that I'm reading, there's a riot in which three Mexican Mafia members, they're like in 18, 19 years old, are, are they riot against staff and one of the the guys that rioted with them is William McKinney that's puppet who later became puppet from the AB from the Aryan Brotherhood so bad guys were bad guys so they even connected then with guys that were in the future going to be AB members and so you know it, it, it's crazy to read that and see their involvement they sent some of the YA guys, Mexican Mafia guys, to San Quentin and intermingled them with adult offenders. They created what was called an ACYA number. So you had it like a dual commitment. You were a youth authority ward who's now got an adult number, and they mixed them with them in the hope that they would be deterred from being knuckleheads. Yeah, what, I, I can already tell <laughs> you that's cow. not going to work, right? It didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. It what didn't work. They had, a, they had a month, December of 91, they called Black December. Uh, uh, when I do uh, presentations, I show the, 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 the victims' bodies and the murder weapons, and I, I had a, have access to that. And, uh, and it uh, shows that the killings that were done as they introduced themselves to the San Quentin Yard. Uh, uh, you know, there were different guys that did the killings, but all of them were Mexican Mafia members. So in early 60, like 61, they got together, uh, uh, Cheyenne, Wero Buff, the, the founder, and a few others, and they decided to form a death oath, to implement a death oath. A death what? Death oath. Oath. Oh, oath. Death oath. oath. Yeah. O-A-T-H. In other words, yes. Yeah. In other words, the only way out of the organization now is, is, is by death. the cemetery. Yeah. Once you're in, you're in for life or you die. Uh, there was a, a bunch of rules. You know, there were 10 rules uh, that were punishable by death if you violate any of them, like like politicking against a fellow brother, showing weakness. Uh, you know, just a, there, there were a lot of formal rules and uh, and then the name they they kind of amended the name. It was still Mexican Mafia, which the the term Mexican Mafia, uh, of course, Mafia is kind of like uh, a respect to a, a, a well-known organization, the Italian mob. Cosa Nostra, thing Cosa of ours. Cosa Nostra, yeah. So we, uh, you know, oh, I say we. Wero Buff decided uh, Mafia, but Mexican Mafia. Hey players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there.
In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two. 